Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If 1990 was anything, it was a year of incredible change. Sure, it was the beginning of a new decade, but more than that, much more, it was the start of a new era in human history. The decade that followed ushered in the end of communism and apartheid. It saw the beginning of technological wonders that would both bring the world together and divide it along the way. And it changed the very way we communicated with each other. It was also a time for some of the greatest achievements in music, television, and sport. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and as this decade comes to a close, History of the 90s looks back and counts down 10 of the most memorable stories of the very first year of the decade that changed the world forever. This is 1990. In the number 10 spot, the Milli Vanilli scandal. We start with the world of music. Well, sort of. When Milli Vanilli released their debut album, Girl You Know It's True, in 1989, the German pop duo were made to rule the charts. Fab Morvan and Rob Pilatus were almost too good to be true. They were good-looking, and their album, with its catchy synthesizer songs, was a massive hit that topped the charts for weeks. Then in February 1990, they won the Grammy for Best New Artist. Uh, we want to say thank you very much, but we want to say there are a lot of artists here in this room, there are a lot of artists outside in the world who can achieve the same award that we achieved today, and it's an award for all artists in the world. Thank you very much. Thank you. Just a few months later, in November, their German record producer, Frank Farian, held a news conference to tell the world that the guys didn't sing a single note on their album. He said he'd hired the unemployed models to lip-sync in videos for songs already recorded by three studio musicians. The dream for Fab Morvan and Rob Pilatus was over. Because days later, the National Academy of Recording Artists and Sciences revoked their Grammy. It was the first and only time any artist had ever been stripped of a Grammy. The Tarnished Stars held their own news conference. And they didn't blame it on the rain. They blamed it on Farian, who they said coerced them into lip-syncing and keeping the lie a secret. Sadly for Rob Pilatus, the lip-sync scandal was the beginning of a spiral into substance abuse. He died of a drug and alcohol overdose in 1998. Fab Morvan put out his first solo album in 2003 and is still making music. In the years since Milli Vanilli's Fall from Grace, lip-syncing has become more advanced and more commonplace, and so many more artists have suffered through historic performances that have epically flopped. Like when Ashley Simpson flubbed her performance of Pieces of Me on Saturday Night Live in 2007. And who could forget Mariah Carey's train wreck New Year's Eve performance in 2017? She blamed a faulty earpiece for not being able to sing along with backing vocals. Carey eventually gave up and paced around the stage for two songs while complaining to the audience. 
Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! In the number nine spot, the fall of Mike Tyson. 23-year-old Mike Tyson was undefeated when he stepped into the ring in Tokyo on February 11, 1990, to fight Buster Douglas. He was the overwhelming favorite to win the title match because he truly had never lost a fight as a professional boxer. Tyson lacked fire and intensity right from the start. Douglas, on the other hand, was quick and explosive. In the ninth round, Tyson's left eye swelled shut from the number of hits he had taken from Douglas. Then in the 10th round, everyone watched in disbelief as Douglas landed a right uppercut, followed by a left and then a right to Tyson's head. Iron Mike dropped in a heap to the floor. Landing these, oh, nice uppercut by Buster Douglas. Look at this. He's knocked Mike Tyson down for the first time in his career. Mike Tyson hits the canvas. He's in big trouble. The referee stood over Tyson, who lay flat on his back and counted him out. It was one of boxing's all-time biggest upsets. This crushing defeat marked the beginning of the end for Tyson's career and his public persona. Over the course of the 90s, Tyson would fall further from grace with a series of bizarre, violent, and often criminal acts, including when he was sent to jail for sexually assaulting an 18-year-old contestant at the Black Miss America pageant. Once he got out after serving just half of a six-year sentence, Tyson attempted a comeback that came to a crashing halt when he bit off the tip of Evander Holyfield's ear. Today, he's a podcast host, a movie star, and a cannabis entrepreneur and aficionado. On his podcast, Hot Boxing with Mike Tyson, the former heavyweight champion shared that he spends $40,000 a month on pot and that they smoke 10 tons of weed at the Tyson Ranch, the boxer's forthcoming 40-acre marijuana farm and resort. Well, what's the show about? It's about nothing. <laughs> No story? No, forget the story. You gotta have a story. Who says you gotta have a story? At the number eight spot is the debut of Seinfeld. No one in 1990 had a clue that a sitcom built around a group of fussy, self-absorbed people who obsessed over the minutia of daily life would go on to become the most influential show in TV history. In the history of pilots, Seinfeld has got to be one of the worst of all time. In 1989, NBC asked stand-up comedian Jerry Seinfeld and his writing partner Larry David to write and produce a 90-minute late-night special. Instead, they wrote a 30-minute script for the pilot. NBC aired the Seinfeld Chronicles on July 5, 1989 as a special in primetime. Though it pulled a decent audience, NBC wasn't sure if they wanted to make it into a full-fledged series. The audience just didn't seem sold on the show, and that scared the network. It could be because the show at the time didn't include Elaine, and Kramer was called Kessler. But Warren Littlefield, president of entertainment at NBC, really liked what Jerry and Larry were doing. It made the executives laugh. So they canceled a two-hour Bob Hope special and stuck with Seinfeld, the show about nothing, and ordered a five-episode season 
And pretty soon, Jerry, Elaine, George, and Kramer were household names. Not only did Seinfeld usher in a new era of TV comedy, it also introduced a lexicon of catchphrases and Seinfeldisms. No soup for you, sponge-worthy, these pretzels are making me thirsty, shrinkage, regifter, double-dipper, close-talker, low-talker, serenity now, festivus for the rest of us, not that there's anything wrong with it, and master of my domain. It eventually spawned 180 episodes across nine seasons. Outside of Seinfeld, 1990 was a banner year for TV because it also saw the premiere of two other legendary shows, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and the world's longest-running sitcom, The Simpsons. Four main engines start, T-minus six, five, four, three, two, one, and liftoff of the Space Shuttle Discovery with the Hubble Space Telescope, our window on the universe. In the number seven spot, the Hubble Telescope. The world's first space telescope started circling the Earth in April 1990, marking the most significant advance in astronomy since Galileo's invention in 1609. The 11-ton Hubble Telescope, which is the size of a bus, cost $1.5 billion and 20 years to develop. And that's why scientists were pretty devastated when the first pictures taken with the telescope came back as nothing more than a fuzzy blur. They soon discovered there was a problem with Hubble's camera that couldn't be fixed from Earth. It was another three years before the space shuttle took astronauts to Hubble to replace the camera. But it was worth the wait. The first pictures sent back to Earth were breathtaking. Since then, Hubble has provided more than a million out-of-this-world photos from new galaxies far, far away. And it produces much more than stunning pictures. Its scientific instruments have revolutionized our understanding of the universe and its history. Now almost 30 years old, Hubble is set to be retired. A new telescope replacing it is expected to be launched in 2021. The James Webb Space Telescope will provide greatly improved resolution and sensitivity over the Hubble, and it will enable a broad range of investigations across the fields of astronomy and cosmology, including observing some of the most distant events and objects in the universe, including the formation of the first galaxies. Well, on Wednesday, December 20th, I ordered U.S. troops to Panama with four objectives. To safeguard the lives of American citizens, to help restore democracy, to protect the integrity of the Panama Canal Treaties, and to bring uh, General Manuel Noriega to justice. All of these objectives have now been achieved. In the number six spot, Noriega surrenders. On January 3, 1990, Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega stepped out of the Vatican Embassy in Panama City and surrendered to U.S. authorities. He'd taken refuge in the embassy after the U.S. invaded Panama. Noriega, who ruled Panama from 1983 to 1989, spied for the CIA until drug trafficking and his brutal regime sparked the invasion. 
Once captured, he was whisked to Florida, where he was charged with accepting $4.6 million in bribes to turn Panama into a way station for Colombian drug traffickers. He was also accused of giving refuge to wanted cartel leaders like Pablo Escobar. In 1992, Noriega's trial marked the first time in American history that a jury convicted a foreign head of state on criminal charges. He stayed in a U.S. prison until 2010, when he was extradited to France on charges of money laundering. He served seven years in prison there and was then extradited to Panama, where he remained behind bars until he died in 2017. Before Noriega died, he tried to sue the creators of the Call of Duty video game. He claimed that his portrayal in Black Ops 2 damaged his reputation. A judge dismissed the case. In the number five spot, USSR in turmoil. Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev's ambitious perestroika program of economic and political reforms floundered in 1990. Instead of making things better, living conditions within the once great superpower continued to deteriorate with shortages of bread, sugar, meat, and cigarettes. In February, the Communist Party gave up its monopoly on power. Lifting the iron fist revived old ethnic and religious rivalries, and it kindled separatist desires among some Soviet republics. One by one, Soviet countries declared sovereignty. Lithuania was the first when in March, it proclaimed the restoration of its pre-war independence. Next came Estonia and Latvia. Moscow declared a state of emergency in Azerbaijan as Armenians and Azerbaijanis clashed in the capital of Baku. Despite these problems at home, Gorbachev was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in October 1990 for his role helping to end the Cold War, free the Eastern Bloc, and slow the arms race. Just over a year later, Gorbachev stepped down as leader of the Soviet Union. And that same day, the hammer and sickle flag of the Soviet Union was lowered outside the Kremlin for the last time. It was replaced by the tricolor flag of the Russian Republic. It was the end of an era. The morale up here is, is tense. Everybody's scared, but with the the negotiations happening, I think we have some hope into uh, resolving the situation. Number four, the Oka crisis. In the summer of 1990, all eyes were on the small town of Oka, Quebec, where a land claims dispute erupted in a dramatic showdown between Mohawk protesters, police, and the army. It started when negotiations broke down over plans to expand a golf course and condominium on the disputed land. A group who called themselves Mohawk Warriors set up blockades to stop construction. After an order came down from the mayor of Oka, Quebec police in riot gear stormed the barricades using tear gas and concussion grenades to cause confusion. 
During the brief gunfight that followed, a 31-year-old officer was shot and killed. Both sides claimed the other side shot first. The 78-day standoff that followed became known as the Mohawk Resistance. Eventually, the army was called in to patrol the area. And finally, an agreement was reached when the federal government purchased the land to prevent further development. The expansion of the golf course was cancelled. The Oka crisis was a turning point in Canada. It catapulted Indigenous land rights into the spotlight, and it led to the establishment of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People. The Commission's 1996 report highlighted many issues, including the ongoing effects of the Indian residential school system. The picture has become a familiar one in the past two weeks. Frustrated Indian bands blockade CP and CN rail lines in northern Ontario to force a swift resolution of their land claims. Oka also set the tone for Indigenous resistance throughout the 90s and it inspired many people and communities to take action for years to come. In protests at Clackwatt Sound and Ipperwash, as well as the Idle No More movement. It was an awakening for an entire generation and helped change the course of Canadian history. It helped clear the path for the Government of Canada's apology to residential school survivors and the creation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission which has laid the first few steps towards reconciliation in Canada. At 2 a.m. local time, the Iraqi troops crossed the border into Kuwait. Number three, the invasion of Kuwait. When Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein ordered the invasion and occupation of Kuwait on August 2nd, 1990, it set off a dizzying sequence of events that would eventually result in the first Gulf War. First, the United Nations ordered a worldwide economic and military embargo against Iraq. It required all member nations to stop importing oil from Iraq and Kuwait, and to halt nearly all exports to the Baghdad regime, including weapons. Then there was a buildup of American and allied forces in the region. And finally, the UN authorized use of force against Iraq if it didn't withdraw from Kuwait by January 15, 1991. Saddam Hussein steadfastly refused, and that led to the launch of Operation Desert Storm. U.S. President George H.W. Bush made the announcement. Now, the 28 countries with forces in the Gulf area have exhausted all reasonable efforts to reach a peaceful resolution, have no choice but to drive Saddam from Kuwait by force. We will not fail. The International Military Coalition of Countries included Canada, Britain, France, Germany, the Soviet Union, Japan, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia. Incidentally, it was the first time Canada sent women to war in combat roles. After a five-week bombardment from air and sea, a ground invasion took place, and within 100 hours, coalition forces drove Iraq from Kuwait. A ceasefire was declared on February 25, 1991, and Saddam Hussein was allowed to stay in power. This was a controversial decision that would eventually lead to a second Gulf War in 2003. 
The Iraqi government and military collapsed within three weeks of that invasion, and on November 5th, 2006, Saddam Hussein was found guilty of crimes against humanity. He was sentenced to death by hanging. He died on December 30th, 2006. And the crowd getting excited. There's Mr. Mandela, Mr. Nelson Mandela, a free man taking his first steps into a new South Africa. Number two, Mandela's walk to freedom. With his fist raised in the air, anti-apartheid leader Nelson Mandela walked out of prison and into freedom on February 11th, 1990. It was the first time he had been seen in public since 1964, when he was sentenced to life behind bars for a charge of sabotage. At the time of his trial, Mandela was a rugged young man in his 40s, a former boxer who had full cheeks, a beard, and a mustache. Now slim with graying hair, he looked like the distinguished elder statesman he would soon become. Mandela was taken by car through crowded streets to City Hall, where he addressed thousands of cheering people. In a speech frequently drowned out by roars from the crowd, Mandela said, Today, the majority of South Africans, black and white, recognize that apartheid has no future. It has to be ended by our decisive mass action. We have waited too long for our freedom. Following Mandela's release, he led the ANC in negotiations with South African President F.W. de Klerk to end apartheid and bring about a peaceful transition to a non-racial democracy. Mandela and de Klerk were awarded a Nobel Peace Prize in 1993 for their work. In 1994, Mandela was elected president in the country's first free elections. As president, he established a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that investigated historic human rights violations and gave vent to grievances. The commission allowed the country to heal and brought closure to a dark chapter of history. Mandela left politics in 1999, but he maintained a very strong international presence as an advocate for peace, reconciliation, and social justice. Nelson Mandela died in 2013 at the age of 95. And in the number one spot, Germany is reunited. At midnight on October 3rd, 1990, fireworks exploded outside the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin, Germany. Over a million people danced and celebrated the birth of a new country. East and West Germany were officially reunited after 45 years of Cold War separation. This was the dramatic climax of a dizzying year of change. The map of Europe had been redrawn, something that many believed would never happen. The path to a new Germany began a year earlier, in the fall of 1989, 
with pro-democracy rallies in major cities throughout East Germany. As the mostly peaceful revolution continued to grow, the communist government was forced to open the Berlin Wall, allowing East Germans to pass freely into the West for the first time since 1961. Once that border was open, there was no turning back. The Chancellor of a United Germany today called the fall of the Berlin Wall proof dreams can become reality. Nothing has to stay as it is, she says, no matter how high the barricades are. Two months after reunification, all German elections took place and Helmut Kohl became the first Chancellor of the unified country. Although this action came more than a year before the dissolution of the Soviet Union, for many observers, the reunification of Germany effectively marked the end of the Cold War. It also cleared the path to a European Union, which would unite the nations of Western Europe in a spirit of economic cooperation after centuries of bloody conflict. 1990 truly was the dawn of a new era. And that's a wrap on 1990 and the top 10 events that kicked off a decade that changed the world. We'll be going deeper on Seinfeld, Nelson Mandela, and the Oka crisis in 2020. So make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. If you're new to the show, that's where you can go back and listen to some of our older episodes. If you have show ideas or topics you want us to cover in upcoming episodes, please reach out to me. You can find me on Twitter at 1990shistory. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can always shoot me an email at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.